0: Good afternoon. It's Friday the 14th of May 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningson from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the program, Patrick.
1: Great to be with you, Mike.
0: Uh, apologies for the slight delay there, just a, a little technical problem we had to deal with, but uh, we'll get straight on with what's going on in Gaza. And of course, uh, well, the BBC's headline here is Israel hits Gaza targets in heaviest bombardment. Uh, We've seen this before.
1: Yes, we have. Um, this, this is shaping up to be probably the number one story right now globally. Uh, this has escalated in a, in a way that uh, it hasn't happened in the previous times really since the Second Intifada. So the aggression on Al-Aqsa Mosque is one of the holiest sites uh, in Islam by the Israeli security forces this, and the evictions of Palestinians uh, from certain neighborhoods uh, by settlers. Uh, Settlers going around, pulling people out of cars, beating Arabs and so forth. So we haven't seen this level of just comprehensive violence uh, really for a long time. So uh, it has gotten bad in the past, but this looks like it's heading in that direction of uh, what we saw like in the summer of 2014, for instance, that took, you know, thousands of lives. And uh, what
0: what caused Israel to take this action in the first place?
1: Um, This is a subject for great debate. Uh, and it's being fleshed out right now uh, in the media. But what I'm going to comment on is that I've never seen, and a lot of people agree with me, such broad-based opposition to the Israeli position uh, from places you would never expect it or see before, even in the United States, even in mainstream media in the United States. So the, the lobby has had a real hold over this narrative, always taking the side of Israel, blaming all Palestinians, call all Palestinians terrorists because they don't stop. Hamas rockets, etc., always deflecting from Israel's actions and the fact that the Palestinians have been under occupation uh, for decades. Mm. So th- that's changed now. And there's a number of reasons for that. I'm sure we'll be able to discuss that and analyze that further. But right now there's uh, protests against Israeli embassies all over the world. If you look on social media, uh, Israeli embassies are being confronted by protesters in a number of countries. Uh, And I think there's a number of protests scheduled uh, for tomorrow uh, as well. This one's happening in London, Uh, starting around in Marble Arch. So this is obviously looking to make their voice known at the uh, Israeli embassy there in central London, in Kensington, I believe. Uh, But that's what's happening there. It's just one of many global protests uh, that are happening tomorrow.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that. Uh, later on, um, so I mean, where do you see this going? Just before we move on from this topic, where do you see it going in the next days and weeks?
1: Uh, it's difficult to say. Uh, the United States is uh, threatened to step in. Biden says it's going to it's going to stop sooner than later. Uh, do you trust Joe Biden's assessment of any situation? The answer has to be no. no. Uh, but Netanyahu is gaining massively from this for for the hardcore. Uh, right wing in Israel and by the same token Hamas is attracting a lot of support uh, as well and so Iran is also you know supporting Hamas massively and this is also helping Hezbollah as well because it's really just kind of exposed uh, the fact that Israel is completely not interested in international law not interested in human rights not interested in ending this stalemate that's been going on for decades now and people are sort of now seeing it's coming to a head that were the Abraham Accords, Jared Kushner's great deal of the century. What happened to the Abraham Accords? They went up in smoke in a matter of hours. Right. So that shows you just how shallow and thin all of that theater was—diplomatic theater over the last two years.
0: Okay, let's come back to the UK then. And uh, well, the online safety bill, the draft, is now published. It was published. Uh, a couple of days ago, and I think Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Now, Oliver Dowden on screen at the moment, his eyes chopped off. Uh, We didn't do that. Uh, That was the photograph that uh, the government put out. Uh, You may have an opinion about that, but let's just briefly listen to what uh, Oliver Dowden, the Secretary of State for Culture, Digital, Media, and Sport had to say.
2: Sorry. Today is a really important day. We are holding tech companies to account, uh, ensuring that they have appropriate safeguards in place through our online harms legislation. Online harms is really important. We all know as parents how we worry about whether our kids are safe online. It's imperative that we act to address that. It's going to just change their lives for good. I think we're going to look back on this and, and mark this as a pivotal moment in the online world.
0: Yes, indeed. This is going to be a pivotal moment in the online world. And we'll just uh, explain uh, why that is now. So uh, uh, the government, uh, using their £1.6 billion budget uh, for advertising very uh, carefully here, um, they're saying that uh, it's going to protect young people and clamp down on racist use online uh, while safeguarding freedom of expression. So um, you may have a, uh, be able to take a guess as to how they're going to pull all that off. Well, let's just have a look Uh, because they're going to make the UK the safest place in the world to be online. Uh, Yes, Uh, new online harms laws, fines of up to £18 million for illegal content will keep people safe online. I'm just showing you the propaganda that's coming out. Uh, This is £1.6 billion well spent. As as I said there, we will lead the way in internet safety. This is a very important point, because Britain is leading the way globally on this. um, And uh, we have been leading the way globally on this since the beginning of the uh, policy agenda. Um, But they keep reinforcing this idea. It's all about protecting kids online by reducing harmful content, removing terrorist material, cracking down on racist abuse, tackling disinformation, uh, limiting suicide content. You know, they're not going to stop suicide content. They're only going to limit suicide content. They don't want to stop suicide Uh,
1: altogether. The second from the bottom there, Mike, are they going to tackle government disinformation and mainstream media disinformation? Does that... Is that included in the remit?
0: That is a very, very good question, and we're going to answer that in just one minute. Uh, but before we do that, uh, Ofcom, of course, is being made the new regulator. Ofcom is going to be responsible for online content uh, on the platforms. And today's bill, says Dame Melanie Dawes, uh, takes us a step closer to a world where the benefits of being online for children and adults are no longer undermined by harmful content. will support Parliament's scrutiny of the draft bill and soon say more about how we think this new regime could work in practice, including the approach we'll take to secure greater accountability from tech platforms. So they're gonna hold the tech platforms to account if the tech platforms don't censor content sufficiently.
1: That the government wants censored.
0: Absolutely. Uh, This is Dame Melanie Dawes, of course, chief executive of Ofcom. Ofcom stacked to the gills with BBC personnel, former BBC personnel, people still receiving BBC pensions.
1: And that includes political content, right? Political content, which which is deemed to be undesirable or politically incorrect, or goes against the rapid response mechanism narrative.
0: This is absolutely right. But you'll see that in one second. Let's move on. Then here is the National Crime Agency, uh, Graham Bigger, who's the Director General of the National Economic Crime Agency. Uh, fraud, he said, is the most common crime, and he's very delighted that fraud is included in the Online Safety Bill. Uh, but it's not sufficient uh, because actually they're not addressing exploitation of online advertising, which he says is having a devastating impact through investment and pension fraud. Uh, That is true. Some people were campaigning for this before the draft bill was uh, launched. They're very upset that this wasn't included. But the issue of advertising, I'll just make the point if we link it to disinformation, or at least the uh, claims that certain content is disinformation. um, This is already pretty much being done. Here is uh, my Facebook uh, account uh, which is limited because I'm not allowed to place ads on Facebook uh, at all
1: I... And they give you a reason for that, didn't they?
0: Uh, oh, you know,
1: they didn't no. of course. No, not. of course not. No reason They just shut off your ability to place ads and that's done.
0: They did absolutely So now let's just have a look uh, at what this is about So the online harms legislation it applies to category one platforms mainly so this is the likes of Facebook uh, and uh, Google uh, YouTube, uh, Twitter, and so on. Uh, it also applies to services used in the UK. And this is a very interesting point, because the point they make here, one of the clauses in the bill says, uh, you know, a service is considered to be used in the UK, no matter where it's based around the world, if uh, UK users are using it. Um, so the, the UK government is attempting to uh, link le- UK legislation to a company that might be based in Russia, or China, or the United States, or wherever it happens to be, even whether it has a, an actual physical presence in the UK or not, it will fall under this legislation. So what this says to me, Patrick, is that the government's intention is that this becomes the embryonic um, framework for a global uh, online harms policy.
1: Or a great wall uh, like China uh, for Britain. Uh, uh, uh,
0: that, uh, that, that is 100% on the cards here. A so, great wall
1: of information. Yes.
0: Uh, so Ofcom is the new regulator. As we said, there's plenty of room in this bill for scope creep. Everywhere you look, uh, there are opportunities for secondary legislation, statutory instruments, uh, for the, the minister of state, the secretary of state, to make up as uh, make things up as he goes along. There's plenty of room for that in the bill. So let's have a look and see uh, what kinds of things are here. There's a duty of care, uh, in line with the government's response to the online harms white paper. All companies in scope. Uh, will have a duty of care towards their users so that what is unacceptable offline will also be unacceptable online. So who's in scope? Well, the main companies in scope are uh, user to user platforms, that's Mm -hmm. like Twitter and Facebook, Mm -hmm. but also search engines like Google. Okay, these are the main platforms in scope. Uh, The largest and most popular social media sites will need to act on content that is lawful, but is, is lawful, but is still harmful. Harmful The word harmful, the term is not defined in this act. So it's not clear what is meant by harmful. That can be anything they choose.
1: Totally arbitrary.
0: Totally arbitrary. So they will need to act on content that is lawful but is still harmful, such as abuse that falls below the threshold of criminal offense, encouragement of self harm, and mis or disinformation. Right? So they again try to link so-called, what they're describing as mis and disinformation. We have a different view of what that is. Uh, they're trying to link that with criminal offenses or with things that fall below the threshold of criminal offenses, but are still considered to be uh, pretty unpleasant. For example, abuse, uh, encouragement of self-harm and this kind of thing.
1: So, so stuff that's already covered under the law basically, this is trying to basically extend the powers of state beyond the law. Is, yes. it, is this not what it is? This
0: is exactly what it is. Uh, so let's look at the next one. Then there's another duty of care point here. The draft bill contains reserved powers for Ofcom to pursue criminal action against named senior management, uh, who, managers who, uh, whose companies do not comply with Ofcom's requests for information. So if you're running a platform uh, they can make, take criminal action against you as an individual if you don't comply. This is very, very uh, important. It basically is going to force the online platforms to be more draconian in the way that they apply uh, this uh, these rules. But the other point here is that there seems to be a, a, a mechanism for Ofcom to uh, issue orders uh, to have certain content removed from the platforms. So there's quite a bit of power being given the off, off,com here, but you don't need to worry because the bill will ensure that people in the UK can express themselves freely online and participate in pluralistic and robust debate,
1: unless it's deemed to be un- harmful, harmful or quote disinformation by the Ministry of Truth. Is this not the embryonic Ministry of Truth? This
0: is exactly what it is. Uh, let's go on. People using platforms services will, ha- will need to have access to effective routes of appeal for content removed without good reason. And companies must re- reinstate that content if it's been removed unfairly. Again, there's no definition of what's unfair. There's no def- definition of uh, what good reason might be or what good reason might not be. Uh, you have to It's all made up as you go along. And effective routes of appeal, well, this is a good point because of course with YouTube, there is no effective route of appeal you get a box to fill in, uh, there is nobody to speak to, there's no negotiation is possible. You basically type in your 500 characters or whatever you're allowed, and you wait for the response from YouTube. That is not or, a, or no response. Or no response. That is not an effective route of appeal if you can't speak to a human being. But they go on to say users will also be able to appeal to Ofcom, uh, and these complaints will form an essential part of Ofcom's horizon scanning research, enforcement activity. So this isn't about Ofcom stepping in and taking an arbitration role uh, between you and the platform. This is simply about Ofcom's radar, Ofcom's research and their enforcement activity, looking at the scale of the problem as as they perceive it to be, right? So then we got this and this uh, next point is the point you were making a second ago ministers have added new and specific duties to the bill for category one services to protect content defined as democratically important. Just consider this democratically important content. This means what? This means content that the government feels is important. Yes. Democratically important means government, um, important to the government, and therefore that content will be protected. Uh, The content from anybody else is up for grabs, but that content will be protected. This is about, you said rapid response mechanism earlier, that's exactly what this is about. This is about having a narrative and making sure that's the only narrative that can be heard.
1: This is using Ofcom as a weaponized censorship body uh, in order to bolster the already compliant censorship of the major social media platforms that are being le- leaned on by mainstream media journalists, by government ministers, and so forth.
0: The the issue here, Patrick, is that they don't feel that as draconian as the platforms already are becoming, it's not draconian enough for them. There's mm-hmm. still t- too much anti-vax content too much disinformation on there as yeah, what they, they deem it to yes me. exactly yeah. yes
1: so if you just quickly if you look at this in the framework of what happened on january 6th in the united states with the dc riots where twitter was pulling down anybody who even asked any questions about the legitimacy of the november 2020 presidential election in any of the states where there were legal challenges where there were audits there's an audit going now now in arizona and it turns out there was fraud in Arizona, okay, and we said that this would come out later in the wash, right. and yet it has. But what we see here is government working with government agencies and social media monopolies in order to control narratives around the time of key events politically. So this is going to be used basically to direct people during election cycles, during controversial periods where you know there might be legitimate opposition there to challenge the state, and Ofcom, social media platforms, government, uh, the mainstream media—they will crush any of that opposition discussion.
0: Uh, yes, yeah, so and that looks—that looks to be pretty clear in the legislation now. Uh, journalistic content, content on news publishers' websites, is not in scope. That includes both their own articles and user comments on these articles. Now that uh, looks like it might be okay, but then we go on. Articles by recognised news publishers, uh-huh. and this is a key principle in the act in in the bill recognition, and whether you are a recognized news publisher. Uh, Articles by recognized news publishers shared on in-scope services will be exempted, and Category 1 companies will now have a statutory duty to safeguard UK users' access to journalistic content shared on their platforms. Absolutely make sure that the government narrative, because remember, 1.6 billion pounds of uh, advertising money is going directly into Mm -hmm. the likes of the mainstream press. They are reliant on this now. Uh, and uh, this uh, is recognized news publishers' content will be protected under this legislation.
1: Wow, so they can print any lie they want. I mean, how many fake news stories have we seen just in the last month, in the last year, in the last five years, and they're exempt? They have a, a carte blanche, basically. They can print and say whatever they want. Uh, because they're deemed to be category one or no, no,
0: category one applies to the platforms. Okay. They're, they're deemed to be recognized news publishers, and therefore they get right. special treatment.
1: They get special. So yes. there is, this is really an attack, opening for an attack on independent media or anybody who's not quote recognized or reaches some level of status.
0: So this is a bit of the, the There's a bit of a problem here because uh, if we look at the next uh, section that they talk about, they say. Uh, This means that they, this is the platforms, will have to consider the importance of journalism when undertaking content moderation, have a fast track appeals process, and will be held to account by Ofcom. And then they say citizen journalist content will have the same protections as professional journalist content, but this is not what it says in the bill. Uh, right. So, so there is a bit of uh, nuance here that needs a bit more investigation, a bit more consideration. And we will be coming back to this point and try to understand exactly what this particular statement means.
1: Because at present, Mike, citizen journalism or independent content is not uh, given uh, any kind of a fair hearing on these, quote, category well platforms, my, right? Well, my
0: first, my first reaction to this is, citizen journalist content, who's a citizen journalist? Do you have to be an approved citizen journalist? Is this talking about Bellingcat, for example? Mm -hmm. Is this the type of citizen journalism they're talking about? Or does that apply to every citizen journalist out there? I think that there's uh, some nuance there. But the other consideration is, what that clause implies is that if citizen journalist content will have the same protections, then the citizen journalists are being put on into a regulatory regime where they have to abide by the same regulations as the BBC. So the BBC has a five billion pound budget.
1: With a compliance department uh, with a with twenty or thirty people uh, lawyers, responding to lawyers. lawyers.
0: Right? Yeah. And, and citizen journalists will not have this uh, facility, but they're still required to be regulated in the same way. So
1: and, and t- time and time again, Mike, whenever you have heavy government regulation of anything, any business or any activity. What it happens, it always favors the monopolies. It always favors the giants. And it is by nature designed to crush any sort of independent or small to medium size, entrepreneurial, anything like that. So if you can't afford to comply and to jump through all the various chutes and ladders that are being uh, thrust upon the market, then you will not be able to survive. Right. It's as simple as that. So it, it automatically, there's a bias, and it favors big institutions. So
0: 100% correct. So uh, we'll just end on this one. Online fraud. They're saying measures to tackle user-generated fraud will be included in the bill. It will mean online companies will, for the first time, have to take responsibility for tackling fraudulent user-generated content. Um, again, the definitions of what this means are so uh, slack that it could mean anything. Uh, obviously, the, the the conversation that's taking place is talking about uh you know, fraud in the sense of a criminal offense. But this whole notion that they need extra legislation uh, to deal with fraud, fraud is fraud. It's already illegal. Uh, the fact that it's happening on, online is irrelevant. And, you know, the, poli- they,
1: the police respond to those cases already. Yes. If they have legislation in place.
0: So if you think back to the very first uh, comment there, that the, the whole idea of this uh, legislation is to make what's unacceptable offline unacceptable online. But that is predicated on the idea that things that, are, that fraud online is not unacceptable in some way. Of course, it is unacceptable. It's already illegal. We don't need ex- extra legislation for it. This isn't really about tackling fraud. It's not really about tackling child sexual abuse online. It's not about tackling uh, uh, terrorism online um, because a lot of the terrorism content that's online is actually being promoted by the mainstream press in some of their news reports. So it's not about any of those things. It is about uh, maintaining a narrative and uh, it's about trying to uh, suppress uh, counter narratives. Now, they're, as, as we said their freedom of speech, they are absolutely promoting this idea of freedom of speech. Uh, and they are indeed promoting it because everybody will have the right to set up a website, to put content on that, that website, to say whatever they like, as long as it's legal. Um, uh, but of course, you will not be able to promote that content on any of the platforms that most people need to promote their content on because that's where their audience is. So uh, if you're de-platformed from Twitter, if you're de-platformed from Facebook, if you're de-platformed from Google and the other search engines, as a matter of law, uh, then you can, you've got all the freedom to say whatever you like but nobody's going to hear you. This is extremely dangerous legislation and it has to be opposed uh, and I think, uh, you know, if, if people are going to do anything in the next... Uh, Couple of months while this is running through Parliament, they should be camped outside their MPs' mm-hmm. surgeries and making sure that MPs understand that this is unacceptable. And uh, because if you know this, this is one area where basically, if 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 it goes through uh, and it becomes the regime that it looks like it is, uh, there can be no conversation about what's going on in the world.
1: No, no, this is a power grab. This is a massive power grab, state power grab, the likes of which. We haven't even seen yet today.
0: Yes, so you know what they're attempting to do is to, you know, get people off the main platforms on the not category one platforms. What are those? Well, they are protest pens, and we're seeing this in the physical world as well because here's Plymouth Live. Uh, MP fears G7 protest zone in Plymouth will be trashed and marred by violence. So what's going on here? You're they're discouraging in inverted commas people from going to the actual venue, uh, which is uh, you know in Cornwall. Uh, 30 or 40 miles away, whatever it is. Uh, And instead, they're going to set up protest pens in Plymouth. I believe there's also going to be a protest pen in Exeter uh, and in other places. Uh, This is just ridiculous.
1: Uh, The government setting up the pen for protesters. Yes, yes. Uh, And I'm sure everybody's going to, what are they going to do, set up an actual fence that you can stand in, give us, I don't know, 10 metres by 5 metres, put some uh, high-vis tape around it, right?
0: Who knows? But the point is, they're not wanting people at the event itself. Uh, and I think uh, everybody should be making a major effort to get down there.
1: Well, we know what the real reason is, don't we, Mike, for this? Uh, the, the, the social distancing is a big concern in, in St. Ives for the G7 summit. And so two meters has been extended to 200 miles uh, in this case. And really, it's because people are worried about Joe. This is the big worry. Is it safe for Joe? to come to the UK. Is it COVID safe? Is he gonna be okay? Will he have to wear a mask or not? He's a bit you know, shaky in terms of some of the health department and whatnot, yes. and memory and things like that. So they're really worried about Joe. I mean, the, the talk was, was it safe for Joe to come to Cornwall? This was the big debate over the last couple of weeks. And so now I think it's safe that we move the protesters back a few hundred miles. I think it's safe for Joe and some of the other luminaries that are coming as well. So the social distancing has been extended for the G7. Good. Okay.
0: Okay. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. And uh, you'd be very welcome uh, if you join us there. Uh, that would be great. Uh, but also do share our material on the various platforms while they still exist. Of course, the YouTube channel basically in a shutdown state at the moment because. Uh, Uh, Any more content on there, it was very likely to end up with that being closed uh, at this stage. Um, We just want to let everybody know uh, keep an eye out on the UK column website for the yellow card uh, promotion uh, promotion there on the bottom right hand corner. Uh, The new data that was released yesterday is already on the website. Go and have a look at it. There have been more deaths, obviously, significantly more reactions. Um, and we're going to have uh, some new functionality coming to that website uh, before Monday's programme, so we'll be uh, launching that on Monday. Keep an eye out for that. Obviously, as Patrick's already mentioned, many protests going on this weekend. Uh, We think we'll be going to the one tomorrow in Plymouth. Uh, This is the worldwide rally for freedom. I've seen advertisements for this uh, all around the place, including Australia and other countries, um, and uh, so details to be announced. The details of how you can find out about this are on screen at the moment, uh, on from a Telegram group Do join it.
1: Pretty much every major city in the in this country and in in many countries in the West at least, yes. are having some kind of a demonstration. So Tomorrow,
0: yes, yeah. yeah. Hopefully the weather will uh, hold together for that. Um, and uh, well, Patrick. Uh, you are once again published in New Dawn magazine.
1: Well, this is one of the big issues that they're going to be protesting, Mike, is the issue of vaccine passports here. And if you haven't seen this magazine yet, um, I have a feature in this magazine this week, uh, issue 186. Uh, if you look at the show notes uh, below uh, after the show, you'll see a link uh, to this particular issue and go to or go to 21stCenturyWire.com. And vaccine passports is the big feature here. Here's the actual physical print. And I'm just saying it's so rare, Mike, that there are physically printed publications. New Dawn's one of the last surviving ones on the planet, truly independent and very much alternative. Uh, Great, great organization based out of Australia. Uh, I've written for them extensively over the years, and they are really uh, behind this issue and the things that we're covering on this program every week so check it out.
0: Okay, but uh, the government is funding eight vaccine passport schemes despite no plans for a rollout. Well, of course they got plans
1: for a rollout. Well, this is the irony of it, Mike, is that (laughs) while they've all been uh, talking, we'll show you a couple of quotes, they were simultaneously the whole time funding eight, and no less than eight separate schemes for vaccine passports, and this is when you had uh, Michael Gove here saying on BBC Breakfast, this is in December, we reported this, Previously, and Let's not get ahead of ourselves, says Michael Gove, uh, the uh, cabinet minister. That's not the plan, vaccine passports, he's talking about. And here is the esteemed vaccines minister, uh, Mr. Zawari, and he said in February, no plans to introduce vaccine passports. No one has been given or will be required to have a vaccine passport. So this is what the government ministers have been saying all along while they have been funding it, planning it, intending to roll it out the whole time, months and months ago, even before the new year, okay? So, these people, Mike, are clearly lying to the public, even when they're challenged about it. They're really bypassing any kind of uh, oversight legislation. Is it going to be a debate? In Parliament about vaccine passports, or is it just going to be a fait accompli?
0: Either way, I think it's a fait accompli because there is no opposition in this country at the moment, as you know.
1: There is opposition, but not in government. Right, uh, Right. Because we have a one, effectively a one-party party state. state right now. So uh, I, I find this interesting, and this kind of underpins the whole uh, topic here. But look back. This is, and you've covered this previously. This is from the European Union. The timeline here. Uh, 2018 is when they began the Vaccine Passport Project, and it just conveniently coincides with the outbreak of the so-called novel coronavirus uh, in early 2020. And that's really helped this project along, hasn't it? Uh, But initially they had hoped to sort of have this for some kind of public consultation uh, by, you know, 2022 and sort of dot their I's and cross their T's, Mike. But uh, this has been fast-tracked. Uh, thanks to COVID, yep. COVID is the gift that keeps on giving to the authoritarian uh, police state. So this is a globalized issue. This isn't just confined to any specific country. And so what you need is the key countries, the key multilateral countries. You have the EU, you have the United States, you have the five Eyes countries, you have you have Global Britain that has its own trade links now because yeah. of Brexit. Uh, Is this related to Brexit? This is also a a point of debate. I hope that people will explore further.
0: Yes. So where does that take us?
1: Well, uh, it takes us to the uh, lockdowns are supposedly being lifted, we're told. uh, When is it? June? Uh, When we're allowed to hug people, we're told. So the government has said all these things we're allowed to do now, allowed to drink. Maybe we're allowed to take the masks off on Monday and maybe go indoors and have a meal. Maybe. Maybe. And then lockdown might be, or whatever lockdown is these days, will be lifted uh, at the end of June, supposedly. But, 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 not so fast. Not so fast. Uh, Summer is canceled. Well, so says Matt Hancock, tells This Morning program that lavish holidays abroad will not be possible because of the emergence of new variants. And we'll talk about some of those variants in a minute, but I think we have a, a video clip here of uh, Matt Hancock with uh, the, uh, the paragon of journalism himself, uh, Mr. Philip Schofield, and his lovely co-host here. Let's listen to what Matt has to say about summer.
2: Do we, do we now all have to come to the conclusion that summer is essentially cancelled, holidays cancelled? It'll be like unlike any summer that we've had probably since the Second World War. Do we, do we now all have to come to the conclusion that summer is essentially cancelled, holidays cancelled, it'll be like unlike any summer that we've had probably since the Second World War? I think that's likely to be the case. Yeah, we haven't made a final decision on that yet, but you know, so, social distancing of some kind is going to continue. And I think, you know, the conclusion from that is that it is unlikely that uh, big, lavish international holidays are going to be possible for uh for for this summer i I just think that's a a a reality
1: of life
0: so it's a reality of life
1: so what's going on here i thought summer was uh coming and there was going to be no lockdowns they're already say foreshadowing getting the public ready priming them for pulling it back well
0: we're going to explain all about that in one minute but uh
1: based on the variants and let's just remind people of what they have to play with in terms of variance in their arsenal here uh, this is from Frontiers in Microbiology. This is, I believe this is peer-reviewed. Uh, this, it, the, the title is Geographic and Genomic Distribution of SARS-CoV-2 Mutations. And this is what the government has to work with, Mike. This is their war chest. 353,341 mutation events com, uh, compared to uh, the Wuhan-referenced genome there. so. The, the, the grab bag, Mike, in terms of variants is just over 350,000. Well,
0: which is exactly the point that we were making for many months until the term variant of concern trademark uh, became the latest sort of trademark of the British government. And the implication was that there were only three or four major variants, when in fact, all the time there's mutation going on. So uh, this is a very key point, uh, more variants coming. Uh, we've shown uh, the the fourth new variant coming uh, uh, several times. But it is, of course, the Indian variant. Ooh. This is the one.
1: Biggest, it's the biggest variant as well. because India's big, right?
0: Yeah, right, right. That's right. So, uh, so let's have a look and see what uh, the SAGE, uh, this is the Scientific Advisory Group for, Group for Emergencies is saying in their latest advice. Uh, so this was a meeting that was held on the 5th of May. It was held by video teleconference, and thank you very much to the person that uh, uh, pointed me at this uh, earlier on. So let's just have a look at some of the detail of this. Um, First of all, there's been a significant recent increase in prevalence of the Indian variant, that's what that says, Uh, including some community transmission, Public Health England is currently prioritizing case finding and containment for this variant. Early indications, including from international experience, are that this variant may be more transmissible than the original variant, but they have low confidence for that particular statement. So, but they've made the statement anyway, they've got no particular confidence in it, but that's that's fine. Uh, they go on to say that SARS-CoV-2 is continuing to evolve antigenetically. They've got high confidence of that. There is a need for medium and long-term strategies for vaccination to respond to this. So uh, medium and long-term, this isn't going away anytime soon. And be very careful, pay attention to that word antigenetically. We'll be coming back uh, anti- antigenically. We'll be coming back to that in a second.
1: So a customized response for that variant, just like D- uh, Dr. Devi Shrihar from Edinburgh was saying, we need a vaccine for every new variant
0: every and new get variant.
1: them into people's arms as fast as possible.
0: Right? Let's go on. Modeling. Modeling shows that taking step three of the roadmap. This is the uh, mm-hmm. removal uh, coming out of lockdown. Is alone highly unlikely to put unsustainable pressure on the NHS. This is a very interesting point. We're going to come back to this in one second. Uh, But it goes on to say a variant which either substantially escapes immunity or is highly transmissible could lead to a very significant wave of infections, potentially larger than that seen in January 2021. If there were no interventions, uh, maintaining control of transmission of any such variants will be more difficult. Uh, When there are fewer measures in place, reducing the number of variant infections should be a priority for policy. In other words, don't come out of lockdown. You've got to have the measures in place because without the measures, you can't maintain control of the variants. Now, uh, it goes on. Uh, Eventually, it is likely that the virus will display substantial antigenic variation, and the current vaccines may fail to protect against transmission, infection, or even against disease caused by newer variants. Uh, updating the vaccine to keep pace with viral evolution or searching for more broadly uh, protective vaccines are potential solutions to this. Uh, It goes on, the resurgence will be smaller if baseline measures uh, and sustained changes in behavior which reduce transmission are maintained beyond the end of the roadmap. They've got high confidence in that statement. Uh, The speed of vaccine rollout is a key factor in the size of the resurgence. They've got high confidence in that statement as well. But they go on to say the two biggest risks absent of new variants are that either high contact patterns emerge early or there is low vaccine rollout amongst younger adults. We've got to get vaccination into the younger adults. Otherwise, we're going to see resurgence and the need for further lockdown. The combination, they say, of these two would lead to larger resurgence. Right? So uh, let's just look at the last page because I thought this was interesting. Uh, the last page lists the one hundred and seventy so people, sorry, the seventy six people that were uh, on this uh, this call, but quite a number of them are redacted. We're not allowed to know uh-huh. who was on this call uh, at all. So there we go. Um nonetheless, uh, remind yourself, keep in mind uh, this the comment about the risks of uh, con- continued pressure on the NHS because we're coming back to that in one second. But uh, with respect to the vaccinations themselves, Patrick, what's going on in the United States?
1: Well, before, before I tell you that, I just want to just make it clear, okay? There is no clinical evidence that X number of people in the UK are carrying any of these so-called variants. This is, this is all theoretical. Most of it is computer-modeled projections from epidemiologists like Neil Ferguson, okay? Right. This is what's informing all of this activity. Uh, in government right now, in SAGE. So do they have evidence that even such-and-such such thousands of people are carrying this new Indian variant, or, or that anyone's getting sick, or that in anyone has died from it? Okay, where is the clinical evidence or the scientific proof for any of that? Certain, Surely they would be able to test for it, or is this all being done by estimations, modeling, and then PCR tests that are not you know, not super specific, in other words, they're not telling you exactly what mutation of the virus is in a the person. They're only picking up two separate preloaded RNA fragments for replication, which is what the PCR test does. Right. It doesn't test the presence of an active infection.
0: That's correct. Uh, ever the new, that is exactly what's going on.
1: So, so it's, in a, it, it's in a way, a lot of it is smoke and mirrors, blinding the public with science and the media fall for it every time.
0: Well, they, they aren't falling for it. They're being paid to promote it. So yeah. so we've got to keep that in mind. Uh, and that uh, harks back to the online harms. Uh, but uh, what's the CDC saying now?
1: Oh, well, the CDC is giving the green light, Mike. Uh, they've said that fully vaccinated Americans no longer need masks indoors or outdoors in most cases. So the relaxing restrictions, uh, even though some states might have completely abandoned uh, the mask mandates. So you have this two-track America right now where the federal government's doing one thing and the states are doing their own thing. And I think the states are doing absolutely fine. Let's look at what they're saying here. CDC officials cited a growing body of real world evidence, I'm not sure what that is, demonstrating the efficacy of coronavirus vaccines and noted the shots offer protection even against more contagious variants circulating in the United States. Sound familiar, doesn't it? It does. So it's the same uh, script, the same playbook on both sides of the Atlantic. So it's all about getting people vaccinated. The idea that people who are fully vaccinated can take off their masks, can go outside, can go inside, be around people, and not have to worry about COVID anymore. That's absolutely huge," says Richard Besser, former CDC acting head. So I mean,
0: and it's also absolute nonsense because we're not allowed to go on holiday, even though we've been vaccinated. According to uh, Matt Hancock, we're not allowed to. We're not allowed to do all kinds of things, even though we've been vaccinated. Uh, so
1: you can't ride on an airplane without a mask, right? Uh, For instance or a train or whatever they so literally it's totally arbitrary in terms of the application of any of these rules This is just going to be a chaotic period where everybody's doing different things the government saying one thing the scientists are saying another uh, And you know, no one's going to be able to really agree on anything in reality But it's just going to be forced down people's throats. You Uh, you don't know what you're gonna get
0: No, and the effect of that is to keep people destabilized and that is the intention.
1: Yeah, so let me show you how desperate they are in America to try to sell vaccines. Look at this story and tell me if you can top this. Ohio, Gov- Governor De- DeWine, there he is right there, he's basically launched a lottery. One million dollars uh, if you get vaccinated after May 26th. He's giving five one million dollar prizes to anybody that lines up and has the experimental uh covid jab okay and
0: you get put into the lottery and five people out of that lot will get chosen and you'll be a lucky winner
1: oh but not just that five full scholarships to ohio's public uh, higher education systems so they're they're bribing the working class okay with 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 the promise of riches mike not even riches the promise of riches this is like an episode out of black mirror look at this this is what uh, dewine said i know that some may say, DeWine, you're crazy. And we're gonna say, yes, you are crazy, Governor DeWine. You're absolutely crazy and you're totally desperate. If the vaccines were so uh, needed and necessary, uh, certainly you wouldn't need to bribe people with cheap stunts like lottery. And by the way, they're using federal money for this. This is a federal COVID relief money for the state. He's turning into a lottery prize draw. Mm. I mean, this is just like, where is government these days? I mean, this is totally bonkers. But yet this is what passes for it's acceptable. They were crowing and loving this on CNN uh, yesterday and MSNBC. So there you are.
0: Um, right. Now we're going to get on to what for some people is going to be a pretty challenging topic. And we're going to put forward our position on this. And this is just Patrick and my position. Uh, other people, even within the UK column, may not agree quite with what we're about to say. You may not agree with what we're about to say. Um, but we think it's worth consideration. Um, And uh, so we're going to start off with a little bit of video of Rand Paul talking to uh, Dr. Fauci. Just have a listen to this.
2: Senator Paul. Dr. Fauci, we don't know whether the pandemic started in a lab in Wuhan or evolved naturally, but we should want to know. Three million people have died from this pandemic and that should cause us to explore all possibilities. Instead, government authorities, self interested in continuing gain of function research, say there's nothing to see here. Gain of function research, as you know, is juicing up naturally occurring animal viruses to infect humans. To arrive at the truth, the U.S. government should admit that the Wuhan Virology Institute was experimenting to enhance the coronavirus' ability to infect humans. Juicing up superviruses is not new. Scientists in the US have long known how to mutate animal viruses to infect humans. For years, Dr. Ralph Barrick, a virologist in the US, has been collaborating with Dr. Shi Zhengli of the Wuhan Virology Institute, sharing his discoveries about how to create superviruses. This gain of function...
0: Right, and he goes on to talk about gain of function and so on. So let's, first of all, clarify this situation with gain of function. What is the definition of gain of function? Well, again, a function is a field of medical research focused on positive selective pressure uh, on on the microorganisms that they're experimenting with to affect mutations that would increase their pathogenicity, transmiss- transmissibility, and antigenicity. Now, that is not necessarily it can include uh, taking animal viruses and and bringing them into the human realm. But for Rand Paul to suggest that that the taking an animal virus and bringing it into the uh, human realm is the key uh, function of gain or the key mechanism of gain of function is not correct. That it's purely about increasing the pathogenicity, transmissibility, and antigenicity. And I'm a little bit surprised, Patrick. First of all, that uh, Rand Paul would misrepresent it in quite that way. But he also uh, made the comment about three million deaths. We'll be talking about that a little bit more in a second. But that's two things that he said right at the very beginning of that, that I'm really struggling with.
1: Well, especially because he's a doctor as well. So I, I would, you know, he said 3 million people have died, uh, from, from this virus, from COVID. And that's highly uh, debatable, especially when you consider the, the scale of the PCR fraud, uh, that we've witnessed globally in the last 14 months. And so really he's giving extra credit to COVID, uh, extra superpowers, uh, to the virus in order to basically ride what is now the China virus narrative. And so a lot has been talked about on this, especially in the last couple of days. We've obviously known about this and alluded to it a long time ago, uh, and others have too. But now it's it's really bubbling up right now.
0: It's really bubbling up right now. So it's the allegation that uh, that this came as a result of a leak from the, the lab in Wuhan, and was that Dr. Fauci and others that were funding this. We'll cover that in a bit more detail in a second. But let's This then resulted in Tucker Carlson uh, making uh, one of his uh, monologues. And let's just have a listen to a short excerpt from that.
1: For five years, from 2014 to 2019, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which Tony Fauci runs and has for decades, pumped money to a group called the EcoHealth Alliance. The EcoHealth Alliance is run by a man whose name you may recognize, Dr. Peter Daszak. Daszak contracted with Dr. Xi to conduct gain-of-function experiments at the Wuhan lab. Just before the pandemic became public knowledge, on December 9th, 2019, Peter Daszak sat for an interview that was streamed online. In that interview, Daszak bragged about how easy it is to manipulate coronaviruses in lab experiments.
0: Coronaviruses are pretty good. I mean, you're a virologist, you know all this stuff, but they, you can um, manipulate them in the lab pretty easily. It's yeah. just spike protein drives a lot of what happens with the yeah. coronavirus, uh, zoonotic risk. So you can get the sequence, you can build the protein. And we work with Ralph Barrick at UNC mm-hmm. to do this, um, insert it into the backbone of another virus right. and do, do some work in the lab. So the implication is that this was done in the lab, that uh, the, the uh, virus was enhanced and then escaped the lab and somehow and then transmitted across the world. And that was it. But uh, Mr. Daszak there, he's well known to us.
1: You know, Peter Dasek, he's a president of EcoHealth Alliance. They're supposedly a 501c3, a charity. They started off doing environmental projects, and then they got into biosurveillance uh, in the last couple of years. And so they managed to sort of embed themselves in various projects, including in China itself uh, with Wuhan. So they, the funding came through uh, eco, uh, to EcoHealth via the NIH, headed by Dr. Fau- Anthony Fauci um, in, in, in that joint project in China to investigate uh, the uh, coronavirus in bats, and then obviously uh, mutations. Fauci denies its gain-of-function study, uh, but that's just up for you know discussion about the nuances of how you portray that. But here, here's the point, Mike, um, and, and you're gonna run through some of this. Th- this is a hugely explosive narrative, okay? Not just because of COVID and the crisis that the globe has been Uh, thrust into but there's a geopolitical dimension to it as well yes this is why it is so irresistible especially to uh, Fox News those on the right Steve Hilton from Fox News did a report on this months ago it didn't get any attention at all Mm. but but now it's gotten more uh, momentum so they're basically reboot they've rebooted this about eight times in the last 14 months and it never really got any traction but now they're pushing it again so let's take a look at what everyone's saying.
0: Yes, so let's let's take a look at this. Uh, now, we're going to say reality on the right-hand side. This is this is what we're proposing here. But let's look at the narrative. The first part of the narrative is that Fauci paid the biolab in China to research gain-of-function coronaviruses. Now, of course, this is about uh, enhancing the effectiveness of a virus, making it more dangerous to everybody. Uh, but the reality is that it's true that payments were made, research was done, but SARS-CoV-2 can't be the result because SARS-CoV-2 hasn't been uh, a dangerous virus. We'll explain that in a second if you're skeptical about that.
1: Well, they may say it's more transmissible, but we're being told both. We're being told it's the most deadly respiratory disease known to man, and it's the most transmissible. Well, So it can't be everything at once.
0: Yes, but the key point is it's not deadly. So if this was a, a leak as a result of gain-of-function research, Uh, Where's the deadliness of it? Let's uh, come on to this. The virus escaped and three million people have died, according to the narrative. That's not true, because if if the virus escaped, it hasn't killed three million people. Where are the bodies? Deaths attributed to COVID-19 do not mean the virus killed them. Now, we've made this point so many times over the last year. SARS-CoV-2 has not resulted in 3 million deaths. In this country, it has not resulted in 130,000 deaths or whatever the number is for this country, the latest number, Uh, because what's the average age for people dying in this country for any cause? 81. What's the average age for people dying from COVID-19? 83. You live longer if you died from COVID-19. So this is not the pandemic. This is not the dangerous virus that has been presented in the press. And the other thing, we mentioned this a few seconds ago with the, uh, the, um, the, the uh, document from the Sage group, um, hospitalizations. What has the situation been with hospitalizations in the UK? Let's just look at this. Here's a typical uh, Guardian article, any units are overwhelmed and it's not the fault of staff. Now, many people looking at that at first glance will think that that's from January 2021. But look, there's a big yellow tag on that that says this article is more than five years old. This article's is from 2016. Mm. This is something that happens every year for the, with the NHS ambulances parked outside uh, during the winter flu season. But this year it was presented in the media as being something different. But here's the other thing. The NHS is under massive pressure today. We mentioned this on the program, a couple of, uh, I think on Monday's program, Brian was talking about a, a hospital in Cornwall. I can tell you for a fact that uh, Dereford Hospital in Plymouth has got ambulances parked outside it with people inside them as we speak because the A&E department is overwhelmed. Now, first question, why is the A&E department overwhelmed? Is it because of vaccine adverse reactions? That's a question that needs to be answered. But the other question that needs to be answered is if these hospitals are overwhelmed today when there is no COVID-19 in the country, Mm -hmm. then what was going on in the winter? Was that uh, uh, overwhelming activity in the winter as a result of COVID-19? Or was it exactly the same reason that we're having uh, hospitals overwhelmed at the moment because the NHS hasn't been actually providing any kind of service? The fact that COVID-19 is not, or coronavirus isn't doing the rounds at the moment, isn't because the amount of testing has collapsed. The amount of testing, as you can see on screen there at the moment, is just as it has been uh, over the last several months. Mm-hmm. The reason that uh, there are no cases of coronavirus at the mo- at the moment is because there are no cases of coronavirus. Full stop.
1: Or they're using a lot of the testing as lateral flow testing, isn't it? In the UK, which is.
0: Uh... Oh no! But these this statistics is is uh, this is from. Uh, the, uh, the the PCR testing. testing. So when we look at articles like this, and we see that uh, what's going on, what happened in this winter with COVID-19 and the headlines about uh, the NHS being overwhelmed because of COVID-19, and we see that that's happening now, and it happened as the Guardian showed in 2016, then we've got to ask the question, is SARS-CoV-2 this dangerous virus uh, that um, that's is being presented. And therefore, where's the gain of function with SARS-CoV-2? So anyway, let's come back to the narrative. The next part, China's carelessness uh, resulted in lockdown and decimation of Western economies. Well, no, China had nothing to do with that. That was our government's decision. And if we allow ourselves to be diverted into blaming China for this, then we're we're not holding to account the people that were actually responsible for this. Uh, and we've got to keep in mind why these policies were put in place.
1: Because not every country did lock down, did they? And they survived quite happily uh, and did quite well uh, as a result.
0: At least as well, if not better, than most of the countries that did lock down. Um, this led to a global vaccination program. The uh, narrative says all because of China. No, uh, this, there was never any need for a global vaccination program. Uh, that is absolutely clear, it seems to me. So uh, here's the key point. Um, The narrative that's being presented is, uh, is, as you've said, there's a geopolitical aspect to this. That doesn't mean it's all wrong. Uh, A lot of what's being said is absolutely correct. The funding was going on, the research was going on, but there is no evidence, zero evidence, that this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus came out of that uh, laboratory. um, And there is zero evidence that it came as the result of -of gain-of-function research. And the fact that it is it may be transmissible or it's claimed to be transmissible, but on the basis of what? PCR testing, right? We've been running so we've said this so many times, we've been running so many cycles uh, on each PCR test that that could find anything, anything that they wanted to find, they could find with the number of cycles that were running.
1: So- uh, it's an irresistible narrative. You mix China, you mix the super killer virus, you've got Fauci in there involved. So there's people who want to, you know- <laughs> go for Fauci. They love this narrative. Those people who don't like China, they love this narrative. Anyone who's pro war or who's more jingoistic, they absolutely love this story because it ticks all of those boxes. And guess what it does? It lets the fake pandemic off the hook because it doesn't challenge the sacred death count. It keeps Rand Paul's he's said 3 million have died from COVID. That's not true. But yet this is being repeated because people are willing to look the other way on that as long as they can advance this narrative. Right. Why is the question? Right. And there's, I think, political motivations. There's just general human nature. People want a Hollywood story that they can zero in on. Uh, and that sort of makes life a bit more simple and a bit more palatable and go into our geopolitical corners and fight it out, right? So, so
0: let's add some more to this, Patrick, with the two pillars of the fake pandemic.
1: Well, th- th- this is this is the point. All of this is held together By two points. This is what you need to understand. The first is the myth of the asymptomatic spreading, okay? If you believe that a super virus escaped out of the Wuhan lab and it raced around the planet in a a matter of weeks, okay, that's because you believe in the myth of the asymptomatic spread, okay? All of this is basically predicated on that here. And the second pillar is that is validated by fraudulent PCR-positive tests using outrageously high cycle counts that the WHO has even said not to do, that governments have said not to do, the CDC's even backing off uh, as well. So you've got these two pillars. These are the key pillars of everything. Without these, you wouldn't be able to, well, what we're told is the virus can only be stopped, this asymptomatic magic-spreading virus that races around the globe in record time and just spreads to anybody and you don't even need to have an active infection, Mike, okay, it can only be stopped if we lock down, stop travel, shut borders, wear masks, shut schools, social distancing, get vaccinated, use a vaccine passport, etc., etc. fill in the blanks, whatever you want after that, okay? This is all based on those two points and those two points have been thoroughly debunked. So, and that would even debunk the, uh, the, the theory of the supervirus escaping, a gain of function Fauci supervirus, uh, or es- escaping out of the Wuhan Bio BSL 4 lab and then racing around the planet to Fiji, to the UK, to the, the, the outer uh, rims of the Andes and Patagonia. Okay. <laughs> like somehow COVID just jumped around the world in a matter of weeks. If if you believe in the asymptomatic super-spreader and super-spreader events and blah, 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 all of these narratives, you will believe this China virus mm. story because it's predicated on that. And so that's what we, we're asking people to consider, some critical thinking, some yes. logic on this, because I think there's an inherent fallacy based on what we know about all of these things that we've just explained. Right. Yeah. Right, which... So- so, and you know, how did this is the question how coronavirus spread around the world? This is the whole global pandemic is based on this, Mike. It's backed by the World Health Organization. But the question is, is it true? And nobody dares, at least in the mainstream, to ask that fundamental question is it true? Because it's a painful answer when you drill down to it. You realize that there's been a mountains of disinformation, fraud from government agencies, from public health agencies, from officials from politicians, from you name it, the mainstream media. Everybody has been fudging uh, their numbers, have been cooking the books, fiddling the tills, uh, et cetera, as, as I'll show you in a minute with an article in 21 Wire.
0: Right, which brings us on to the Financial
1: Times. Well, yeah. So all of these restrictions, all of these policies, Mike, look at this, billionaire boom, how the super rich sucked up all the COVID cash. You talk about quantitative easing, you know it's been printed and put in. You know hyperinflation is now kicking in in the United States. Look at this. As the virus spread, central banks injected a total of $9 trillion into economies worldwide. Much of that stimulus has gone into financial markets. And from there, into the net worth of the ultra-rich, the total wealth of billionaires worldwide rose by $5 trillion to $13 trillion in the last 12 months months, the most dramatic surge ever registered on the annual billionaires list. Now, j- just do the math, Mike, $9 trillion in quantitative money creation has gone directly into the pockets of those billionaires. That's exactly what has happened. Yes. No one else has benefited from the pandemic, from the lockdowns, from all of the COVID cash. The only people that have benefited in reality, in net in net in net terms, are the global billionaire class. There is the proof right there. They have benefited massively from it. Everyone else has lost and continues to lose if we have hyperinflation like we're seeing in the U.S. right now. That's a that's a stealth tax on every single man, woman and child.
0: Uh, and of course, they benefit further if the if increased tensions, increased fear over China. Now, our right. final point on this, of course, the final point on this is that this notion that SARS-CoV-2 was this massively dangerous virus that we had to vaccinate for globally has meant that we have vaccinated for it globally. Um, And uh, I just urge everybody again to read this article uh, on the UK column website, Clotting and the COVID Vaccine Science, because this is talking about the spike protein and this spike protein is what is causing the adverse reactions. We don't know what it's gonna do, what's gonna happen on a long-term basis as more and more booster shots get applied to people and more and more various variations on, on uh, on on the vaccines. But Mr. Dr. Danzik mentioned it in that little video clip earlier on, the spike protein is what, the, uh, is what a, a coronavirus uses to, um, uh, to uh, propagate itself around the body, but of course, the vaccines are producing a new kind of spike protein, um, and uh, it has dangerous People need to read that article and understand it. But if we focus on China, we're not looking at in the real direction.
1: It if it was a soup Last thing I'll say on this: If it was a souped-up, juiced-up super virus that leaked out of Wuhan, how come it killed practically nobody in a China, a country that a population of 1.4 billion, right. and it didn't even touch them? Okay, in, in in proportion to the size of the country, I mean it's negligible like less than a bad flu season, okay? So if if it was such a super virus, how did did it jump? Did it catch us? Did China put it up in a rocket and then it sort of parachuted down to Britain and Italy and the U.S.? I mean, how did they pull that off? So that if you believe in the China super virus theory, then explain how it just magically didn't affect the Chinese uh, at all. Uh, There's other explanations to that which we believe is plausible and we will... Probably be doing a special.
0: We will be doing a special. A special
1: report, and we'll go down and drill into the absolute details of every single aspect of this, because this is incredibly complex. But uh, we know so much now, after looking at the data and looking at the evidence over the last fourteen months, that it would be silly to fall into uh, another preconceived trap.
0: Right. So, just finally on this, then. some people will be saying at this point, oh, well, Mike and Pat, UK column, you've suddenly become China lovers. Uh, well, this is not the case, but I just ask, make these points to you. Who's pushing this China narrative? Is it the same people who would like to see conflict with China, perhaps? Is it the same people who are diverting attention from the fact that the policies uh, which have resulted in, or as a result of this non-event, are, are the policies That they want to promote for, for example, the Great Reset or the Green New Deal. Is that just a coincidence that these are the same people pushing this? That it's the same people that are really wanting to impose a Chinese style biosurveillance technocracy in the West? Um, China, you know, at the end of the day, hasn't done anything to us to cause it to become our enemy other than the fact that it is big and lots of people don't like the Chinese Communist Party. Fair enough. But our politicians, our pharmaceutical companies, uh, these are the people that have caused this problem for us, and we've got to maintain focus on them. Mm
1: -hmm. And the media as well. Yes. And the partnering organizations. They've created the perception of a global pandemic when, in fact, if you audit the numbers, you audit the testing, you audit the, uh, the evidence, the scientific literature, you find out that, no, it's not. Where's the excess mortality? Right. Is there excess mortality? you would expect that there would be right if there was... there has
0: been some excess mortality but it's absolutely positive to show po- possible to show what that actually was and it was not COVID 19 but anyway let's move on patrick
1: so uh this is an interesting piece uh, we published up here at 21st com. jab nation uh, no dogs no irish no blacks this is by dustin broadberry and this is a really interesting uh, article and very thought-provoking and i would say extremely Uh, controversial. He's talking about, Mike, there wasn't so long ago when uh, you would see signs like this in Britain, uh, landlords would put up saying they're not going to rent to certain people, right? So this is, uh, in in this bizarre parochial moral imperative, discrimination is only only frowned upon if you're discriminating against someone's authorized or rubber-stamped marks of distinction, whereas discrimination of and by itself is entirely permissible. Do you understand the point he's making here, which is that you're not allowed to discriminate uh, based on ethnicity or race. This is seen as abhorrent in in the new modern society, Mm -hmm. okay, and this is good, but you're allowed to discriminate based on ideology or what you might believe or disbelieve about an event that's happening, like a pandemic, for instance. Or
0: your willingness to wear a mask.
1: Or your willingness to be vaccinated with an experimental jab etc. That discrimination seems to be okay in this environment. So this is a really important point. And he goes on uh, as well further and says, uh, these crowd pleasers, he's talking about the people who are pushing for the discrimination, pushing for vaccine passports, would defend their moral high ground by telling you the unvaccinated are selfishly putting others' lives at risk, that mask refuseniks are super spreaders. But hold on for a minute here. And this is what we just talked about. All of this is pure conjecture, which, like everything else under the sun, has been founded on speculative science and political sleight of hand." Not kidding there. Other than taking the government on its word, where's the actual evidence of asymptomatic transmission? Where's the evidence of mask efficacy? In fact, can someone point me to a single risk assessment for any of these scarcely credible uh, interventions? fair question right mm-hmm. we can't find anything okay this is the problem so and uh this is what somebody tweeted here regarding the headline just today this is from ben the busker i'd rather be a black irish dog than a sheep <laughs> i think I, I i'm gonna give that tweet of the week yes uh by ben the busker on twitter i love uh, his profile there he's got little uh, uh alluding to apocalypse now there yes this is uh, christopher Watkins. Uh, character there. So, but they're right. Look at this. We go to Vernon Coleman's website. This is a free ebook, okay, proof that face masks do more harm than good. This is all the peer reviewed literature right here for free. You can download that, go to vernoncoleman.org, get that, and share it with everybody. Mm-hmm. This is a great document as well. And again, back to the myth of the asymptomatic spreader. Here's a peer reviewed article basically shooting that down August 2020 once again. Uh, this is dated, uh, I believe, I'm not sure when this was, November 2020. Here's another one, basically shooting down the myth of the asymptomatic spread
0: with 10 million residents of Wuhan. I mean, it's not a small study.
1: That's not a bad sample size, is it? And especially at ground zero, the so-called epicenter of the pandemic. No asymptomatic spread. Are you getting the hint, people? Okay, and here we go. Finally, uh, this one is in, this is the Journal of American Medicine here, December 14, 2020, again, shooting down this idea of household transmission of SARS. So it's not even spreading within the households uh, as well, according to some of the peer-reviewed literature. We're only showing you the tip of the iceberg here. So this this idea of the asymptomatic spread, this the whole pandemic narrative, all of the interventions, all the policies, school closures, all of it, business, it's PPE, it's money or cashless. It's all based on this idea that COVID spreads asymptomatically. The global pandemic narrative, all of it is wrapped up in this one concept and it has been thoroughly debunked and disproven by peer reviewed scientific literature. Where's the media? Where are politicians on this?
0: Good questions. Now we're gonna end. I think uh, David Scott mentioned this on Monday, but I was very interested to hear your your thoughts on this uh, this article from Lockdown Skeptics, uh, uh, Patrick.
1: Well, this kind of just really brings home a lot of what we were saying, Mike, here. This is uh, on lockdown skeptics here, not written by Toby Young, by, by uh, one of the other writers, but MIT researchers went undercover in the co- what they call the anti-mask community, but that means anti-lockdown, that means COVID deniers, whatever these to So anybody who's against any of the official narratives, they sent undercover researchers to analyze the arguments, to, to analyze the comment threads. There are people doing this on social media. <clears throat> Media and on forums and things like this. Right. So here's what they found. Take a look at this. So this is the paper here. Uh, so according to the researchers, anti-maskers is is a catch-all term they use. Often reveal themselves to be more sophisticated in their understanding of how scientific knowledge is socially constructed than their ideological adversaries, the pro-lockdowners. Uh, and data literacy is a essential criteria for membership within the community. They have created. So they're saying that the, the, the anti-maskers, the anti-lockdown people, the skeptics, put higher value on data literacy, on data analysis, on evidence-based arguments than their counterparts in the pro-lockdown, pro-mask, pro-vaccine crowd, basically, the establishment uh, mainstream crowd.
0: And, they, and the, 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 the thing that you haven't put up there, which had me in stitches, was that they actually went on to suggest that perhaps governments might, want to, might not want to publish quite so much data.
1: Yeah. And they also said, they also put a caveat in there. We, we are by no means uh, endorsing the uh, anti-mask community, but we, we, we do say that they put a higher value on good data and critical thinking, basically. So the pro-lockdown use emotive arguments. Right. They react to imagery. Uh, emotive images of people, bodies floating in the Ganges in India, for instance. That's a, that's a story that's been recycled for years because it happens all the time. But because there's a supposedly a COVID outbreak in India, all of those stories become COVID stories. Right. How many times have we seen this before? I think this is a phenomenal piece of work by this group at MIT, and it really it, it pretty much validates a lot of the work that, uh, that we're doing, that other alternative yeah. independent media are doing. Uh, That the mainstream is not doing and so the mainstream is the source of online harms of real-life harms the government is the source of disinformation of Real problems that manifest themselves in policies based on junk data and pseudoscience And this is why the global economy is in the tank right now because of those policy decisions So I, I would hope that government agencies and ministers would take that into consideration When they're considering how they're going to police information online and censor speech. Think about that and think hard about it. Well I think uh, they're lost causes but
0: the general public aren't lost cause. This bill has to be, as we said earlier on, has to be opposed and uh, we encourage everybody to do everything they possibly can to oppose it. Look we've got to end there. Thank you very much for joining us today Patrick. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back at the same time 1pm as usual on Monday Uh, Hope you have a great weekend if you're at any of the protests and otherwise, and we'll see you then. Bye bye.